All right. So there is a horse trough right here in the center of the room up here. Uh, why, you might ask. Great question. Um, we're going to be doing baptisms tonight, y'all. Yeah. I'm really excited about that. It's, it's going to be a beautiful reminder of the gospel as we celebrate the, the wonder of what happens as God takes us through the waters. Now, we have three ba- individuals who are going to be baptized this evening. But before we get there, as I was praying at last week and beginning of this week about, God, where do you want us to go as we are part of this Revival series where each week we're just going, God, what, what do you have for us, the church, this week? And, and this week, it was just, why does baptism matter? Why do we do this thing? Is it just some religious ritual that we, that, that we do because that's what Christians are, do? Or is there something more behind it? What does it mean? And that's what we're going into tonight. So to get there though, I want to start by talking about how we humans crave safe adventures. Okay, work with me here. I promise it'll connect at some point later on down the road. Okay, we crave safe adventures. All right, what I mean by that is we, at least I, and some of you like thrill, right? We like an adrenaline rush. I know that's not like every person across the board. Let's pretend it is for the sake of this argument, right? We, where do we go? We go to theme parks, right? You can go on roller coasters and you get an adrenaline rush or you like haunted houses. So you go and do crazy things like Halloween Horror Nights, right? Why do we do those things yet we don't jump into active volcanoes or try to outrun grizzly bears for recreational use? Because we like adventure, but we want to know we're going to be safe when we have the adventure, when we go to Disney, you ride Tower of Terror or, or Cosmic Rewind. And when you're on these attractions, you don't go thinking, I wonder how this is going to go tonight. Like, you go trusting that the engineering team has done a great job maintaining the attraction, that you're going to ride the attraction and be safe. Yet at the same time, you're going to get an adrenaline rush and it's going to be fun. Same reason why if you go to a haunted house, you know that the scare actors can't actually touch you or hurt you. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't show up. Right? Volcanoes and grizzly bears do not pay the same level of respect to our body and our safety, right? We see, we live in a world that doesn't promise safe adventures. We live in a world where chaos ensues all around us. I mean, just think about all that we have experienced over the last few years, right? I mean, pandemic, inflation, threats of war, cultural shifts, human effects on our environment, broken relationships, job stability, housing affordability, poor leadership, and dot, 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 right? Like you think about in our world, in our lives, there can be a lot of chaos. There's not a lot of safety. And perhaps in that space, you feel that regular dose of anxiety as you feel so out of control with all these different circumstances. I know for me, I hold so much of my anxiety right here, like in my chest. And so when I am feeling extraordinarily anxious, it's like hard for me to breathe sometimes. See, we want adventure, but the kind that our world has around just is very unsafe. 
I was thinking about this one time, Allie and I and her family, we were on vacation and we went on this boat excursion and it was, um, and it was one of these expeditions where you take a boat out and you kind of hop around a bunch of different islands. And it was so cool. It was pristine, gorgeous waters. And it takes about an hour to get out to these island, this island chain. And it was, and it was beautiful the entire way. We got to the islands, explore these islands. It was so much fun. And then a storm rolls in. And all of a sudden, those beautiful, pristine waters are no longer beautiful or pristine. Me and Ali's dad were sitting at the front of the boat, and everyone that was smart was taking up all the occupancy in any place that was actually covered in this boat. It wasn't a very large boat. And for over an hour, me and Ali's dad are getting downpouring from above, and waves are crashing on top of us over and over and over again. And the boat is just doing that little effect. And you're just like, oh my goodness. And wait, how many miles do we out still? It was excruciating. The once peaceful waters had become chaotic. And see, we might crave safe adventures, but all too often the chaotic waters of life make safe adventures seem like something that's reserved for theme parks, not real life. So the question is, why is life so chaotic? And, why, and does God offer a real solution to the chaos? Now, this takes us to a journey we're going to go into right now. It's going to take us from the book of Genesis to the book of Revelation. So we're going to start in Genesis chapter 1. And uh, in the second week of this series, Brady was talking about the Ruach of God, the Spirit of God that was hovering over the seas, at the, at the moments before creation began. And I love this image though, of what happens with the waters, these, these waters of chaos. It calls it a wasteland in Hebrew. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. God, God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together called seas. And God saw that it was good. So out of the dark waters, out of the chaotic wastelands, God brings up a new world for all of life to flourish and thrive, right? And from that moment, he begins to create all the vegetation and animal life that would populate the waters, the skies, and the land. And finally, humanity. Humanity would step into the land and it would be a space for humanity to flourish in a, in a region called Eden. There's a garden in the center of it. And that's where humanity is meant to start thriving. You see, this takes us to the overarching theme of this, uh, of this message that through the waters, God takes his people to a land of promise and peace. But you see, in Genesis 3, everything goes wrong. <laughs> Humanity unleashes chaos back into the world through the arrival of sin into the story of humanity. So in that moment, what we see is the introduction of chaos into the story of humanity, as if the chaotic waters have now re-enveloped all of creation from a spiritual and metaphorical sense. The question remaining, though, if that is where the chaos came from, is by humans' desire to define good and bad on our own terms, to pursue sin and brokenness in our way. Does God offer a real solution to it? A real solution to it. 
See, in that moment, what we begin to see is a replaying of the pattern, this pattern that we'll see time and time again in the scriptures of God continually meeting us in the midst of our chaos and bringing order, life, and peace in the midst of it. In Genesis 7 and 8, we see humanity's chaos has polluted the world at an an unrecognizable point. Sin has run rampant. And God allows a moment of decreation when the chaotic waters begin to cover the, um, cover the earth again. And it literally says, from the deep, there splits the land and up shoots water. The waters of the deep are now coming to envelop over creation again. And that would be sad, but God does something in the midst of it. Genesis 8 verse 1. So in the midst of the destruction, in the midst of the chaos, God calls himself a remnant. But God remembers Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. The Hebrew word for ark is tava. Tava, can you say it with me? Tava. Cool. All right. That one's going to come up again. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. So the chaotic waters of decreation begin to subside as he remembers the remnant. And they step onto the dry land once again. See, in the midst of the chaos, God remembers his people. And he wants to bring about a new humanity, a new opportunity for humanity to flourish on the land. That through the waters, God takes his people to a land of promise and peace. Unfortunately, quickly, humanity begins to spiral back into chaos. First, I mean, pretty soon after with Noah and one of his sons, and then continues on as the, as the land begins to be populated again with humans. The story continues and God calls out a chosen remnant out of all the people groups known as the people of Israel, the Hebrews. And they, they end up though engulfed in imprisonment, in slavery, in oppression to the Pharaoh of Egypt. Now, Pharaoh begins to get suspicious and fearful that his cheap slave labor is going to multiply and be fruitful to the point that they'll outnumber and overtake his control and his power. So he engages in chaos and evil and evokes genocide, ordering the murder of every male child from the Hebrews. But a child survives. Exodus 2 verses 1. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could, not, when she could hide him no longer, she took from him, for him a basket, or the Hebrew word there is tava. A tava, the only other place in the entire Hebrew Bible where that word is used, is in describing the Ark of Genesis and the basket of Moses. In Exodus, a tava made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it, placed it among the reeds by the river bank. This is an abhorrent scene, right? That in the midst of this destruction, midst of the chaos, this mother has to choose that for this, this baby to survive, it was going to have to do it apart from her. But even in the midst of this, even in the midst of the chaos, God uses this opportunity that through the waters down the Nile River, God was going to take his people through the land to promise and peace. So instead, God rescues Moses, raises him up within, ironically, within Pharaoh's household, 
And Moses grows up and eventually God calls him out. He tells him to go back to Egypt and bring the entire nation of Israel out of oppression, out of slavery to a land of promise and peace. And I love the way that God even describes the people. He's not just talking about from a distance. He actually says in Exodus 4, God describes the people of Israel as his firstborn son, his chosen son, his beloved son. See, these Hebrews are preserved by God, making a way through the plagues to both reveal his power and to bring them out of their bondage and chaos. Now, eventually they come to the chaotic waters where in Hebrew it's translated to the sea of reeds and they have no idea what they're going to do because all they see is water and they look behind them and you guys might know what's behind them, right? Pharaoh's army is chomping at the bit, coming with a murderous vengeance to come and take them back into their oppression, back into their slavery. So chaos before them, chaos behind them, not the best proposition in life, right? I mean, you, you've probably heard the story before a time or two, right? Or you watched Prince of Egypt or something at some point. I love that movie. Sometimes we get so familiar with, with stories in the Bible that we forget the drama of the moment. Put yourself in that story. What are you thinking? Are you wanting to throw a rock at Moses right about now? Like, you're like, what is happening? This water, we're not getting through that. We don't have enough boats. And we turn around and here are chariots from Pharaoh coming to take you back. This is a bad moment. What are they supposed to do? But God tells Moses, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it that the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. So they walk. The Israelites are delivered from slavery and death through the waters and they head to a place called Mount Sinai. And as Pharaoh's armies are demolished and destroyed, God's people go to a place where they have a wedding ceremony with their God. They're invited to enter into covenant with him to become God's representatives to the nations through this covenant commitment. It is a powerful, palatable, beautiful moment in the scriptures. See, through the waters, God takes his people to a land of promise and peace. The only problem, the story doesn't end there. 40 years go by and the Hebrews from about five minutes after that covenant was made for the next 40 years, prove themselves to be pretty awful to God. They're unfaithful to their covenant promises to him. They desire to find good and evil on their own terms, to do what is right in their own eyes. They are unhelpful, ungrateful, lacking trust. In other words, like to use modern talk, right? They are just the worst, right? Like these people cannot get it together. And I would definitely judge them if I wasn't just like them so often. But instead, instead God does not give up on these people. He lets an entire generation pass. And instead they spend 40 years in the chaotic wastelands of the desert before they're able to cross the waters to enter the land of promise and peace. So Moses leaves the picture and 
uh, and he goes, he goes up on a mountain and he dies. And then Joshua is called to lead in his place, to call the people out of the chaotic wastelands of the desert through a body of water. This time it's the Jordan River. And while this time they don't, they're not trying to outrun a bunch of chariots from Pharaoh, they had the problem of getting two estimated, two million people across a river. Sounds like a difficult task, except it's flood season. And this particular portion of the river is extremely turbulent. This is going to be really easy, right? I mean, imagine you're the leader. I mean, leadership is kind of a rough gig on the whole, right? I mean, now be Joshua in that moment. What are you thinking? <sighs> Let's see what God does. And God gives him a word. Joshua chapter three, verse 13. He tells him, go do this. When the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. Remember the people crossing that they weren't around to experience the crossing of the sea of reeds. So now they are seeing that the God who was faithful to the generation before them is now faithful still to their generation. And he is going to bring them through. So we get this image of the people called to now exercise faith, that the priests are supposed to kind of get their robes dirty. They're supposed to get in the water before the water parts. Exercising faith. And God's presence creates this damning effect in the middle of flooding season to the point that the scriptures say that they literally walked across on dry ground, not even muddy ground. How does that work? God knows, right? Like that's crazy. But the people walk on dry ground over to the land of promise. See, the chaos of the wilderness is now behind them as God leads them into this land of milk and honey, this land of promise and peace. Through the waters, God takes his people to a land of promise and peace. Once again, I wish the story ended there. (laughs) But the people continue to live a life, even in the promised land, even in the space that God said, this is for you. This is for you to flourish. This is for you to experience life with me. But instead, they choose what is right in their own eyes. They define good and evil on their own terms. They go back into chaos. And through their jealousies and idolatries, they invite in war and famine and death and heartache. Most of all, heartache to God. All the way to the point where they are eventually captured as a people and taken out of the land of promise across the wastelands to be occupied and oppressed by foreign powers once again. The story just keeps replaying over and over again. But eventually a remnant is allowed to come back, but still under oppressive forces. The thought is, will the chaos ever be dealt with? as one empire passes on to the next empire, passes on to the next empire, until finally it lands with the Romans. Now they are occupying. Yes, the people of Israel are are back in the land, but they have a puppet government that's under Roman control. They're being taxed 
like crazy. They're being controlled, hurt, and terrified. Has God given up on bringing his people to the land of promise? 600 more years go by and a a prophet named John begins to do two things. First, he begins to proclaim a gospel. The word gospel simply means good news. He begins to proclaim a good news. And it's funny because this is the simplest explanation of the gospel you could ever make. Like if you have like one floor in the elevator and somebody asks you for the gospel, you can say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what John said. That's what Jesus said. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He begins to proclaim that the awaited Messiah is on his way to bring back his covenant people back into the fold. The kingdom, this land of peace and promise. That, that, that skinny strip in the Middle East is only meant to be a foretaste of the real kingdom, the real land of peace and promise, the kingdom of heaven. And this is what John proclaimed. And then he started doing something else as well, though. He begins to baptize. Hence why he's known as John the Baptist, right? So he baptizes which is a symbolic immersion into the waters to display a renewed commitment as God's people. Just as God, I told you this was going to connect right to baptism. I got there. I told you. All right. So as God took Noah, Moses, Joshua, the entire nation through the waters to a land of promise and peace, John is calling the people to renew themselves to the same reality. See, as they pass through the waters, as they are baptized, as they are brought down into the water and back up again, they, what they were doing, what they knew this meant is they were being ritually cleansed. They repented of Israel's faithlessness, of their covenantal compromise. And it's a preparation to become the new Israel that God is going to form when the promised Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ would arrive on the scene. Then one day on the banks of the Jordan River walks a rabbi, a teacher, a guy named Jesus. John knew him as cousin and his followers would soon discover that he was the Messiah. So he comes to John and he asks to be baptized. But let's hold on for a second. Isn't that kind of odd? Has ever struck you as weird? Why does Jesus need to be baptized if he's perfect. If he doesn't need to be forgiven of sin, then why is he being baptized? Well, we actually discover that his baptism is the culmination of each of the stories that we've talked about so far. Each of these times that people have been brought through the waters, Jesus is saying, I identify in that story. In Mark chapter one, verse nine, this is how Mark recounts Jesus's baptism. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth to Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Well, that matters. Who was brought through the Jordan River before? So this place already holds symbolic resonance to the entire nation of Israel. Hence why John was baptizing there in the first place and why Jesus wanted to be baptized in that specific location as well. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens begin being torn open. 
in the Hebrew imagination, what this would have brought us to is the beginning of the story in Genesis, when the waters were parted open and life flowed from it. Immediately, he saw that heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. Think about that moment. Now go back to Genesis 1, verse 1 and 2. That the Ruach of God, that the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And here now, the, water, the, the spirit of God is descending to Jesus on top of the waters. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. See, Jesus is the true and better Israel. He's the true and better human. So this idea that Jesus is being called the beloved son is absolutely true for him. And it, re it resonates with the original desire for God with the nation of Israel, that they would be his firstborn son, his beloved son, his chosen son. See, th this might sound a little bit like splitting of hairs or kind of stretching the storylines, but this is ensient writing patterns that the spirit of God ensured were captured when these texts are being recorded by Mark to ultimately validate what Jesus was doing and what he would soon be accomplishing in the story. Jesus is the true and better Israel. Jesus was identifying with our chaotic existence and bringing hope of his secure life. Because through the waters, God takes his people to land a promise and peace. But here's something important to note baptism or being brought through the waters doesn't mean that all difficulty ceases, that all of a sudden you become a Christian, you get baptized, and then, and then it gets easy from there. No, what happens with Jesus right after his baptism? He goes into the wilderness and for 40 days, he fasts in the middle of the chaotic wilderness. And then he is tempted by the tempter, the Satan, over and over and over again. Do you know what was unshakable and unquestionable at his baptism? His belovedness and his purpose. Nothing that Satan could say could throw that away. Satan didn't have anything that could possibly dissuade what God had already proclaimed to be true. He doesn't have the ability. He could, make, he could try to make Jesus doubt or be frustrated or question, but all those things were already settled. He was already the beloved son. He was called. See, these are two realities that would carry Jesus through the most difficult moments of his ministry, including his execution on the cross, where he would bear the brokenness of our sinfulness on himself, that he would become our Tava, who would carry us into a land of promise and peace. And then Jesus doesn't stay dead. He comes up out of the chaos of death and into resurrected life. And before he goes to be with the father in the kingdom, he says this to his followers. He says, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. 
have you ever wondered why baptism matters? It matters because like we talked about communion a few weeks ago, it serves as this external proclamation of what God has already done internally. That he has come to bring us from the chaotic waters and desert, deserted wastelands of death into a land of life, promise, and peace. You see, Jesus' followers were called to take this message to the world, to teach others to obey the way of Jesus, to baptize them in front of community into this beautiful reality. See, baptism, if you can't tell yet, it's so much more than just a religious ritual. It's also a commissioning ceremony. Um, maybe you've had a friend or family member who's in the military and maybe they received a commission. When, uh, when someone receives a commission, it is to receive a command, a duty, a responsibility. And we call this the great commission because when we are baptized, what we are reminded of is the same two realities of Jesus that we are unquestionably, unshakably, unrevocably his. We've been adopted in the forever family of God. We are sons and daughters of the king of the cosmos. Nothing changes that. No scheme of the enemy, nothing man can do. We are also given purpose and responsibility. We are called from that moment to go make disciples, to teach them what Jesus taught and how to follow it. Passing on the beautiful realities of baptism to others to tell others that through the waters, this is what God wants to do. He wants to bring you and me through the waters to a land of peace and promise to the kingdom of heaven. And we see in the scriptures, this is exactly what the early church would begin to do. Immediately in the book of Acts, we discover thousands respond to Jesus and end up getting baptized. They are commissioned to take what they had received and to pass it on into the world around them. We even discover their understanding of baptism throughout the letters of the epistles. Paul, for example, when he is talking in 1 Corinthians 10, he actually brings a correlation, a connection, a hyperlink from the exit of Egypt, the exodus, to baptism. He talks and says in 1 Corinthians 10 that the nation of Israel was baptized, was brought through the waters onto the other side of the sea out of Egypt. That's kind of an interesting connection. In the book of Romans, Paul would write about the beauty of baptism that we identify in baptism with Jesus' death as we go under the water and we are risen to life again into resurrection life as we come out of it. In 1 Peter, this is one of the most confusing passages about baptism, so I figured we should probably hit it. Peter even writes about baptism saving us. And that gets really confusing if we understand baptism to be a symbolic endeavor. But if we read the entire passage, we get start getting a little bit more of the context. In 1 Peter 3, starting in verse 20. Here is how Peter would write it. Uh, the context that he's writing about is that we humans, he's talking about the unrighteous humanity story altogether. So when he says the word they, that's who he's talking about. Because they formerly did not obey. Humanity formerly did not obey. Even when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. 
baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. So what he says is, it's not a bath. It's not just about taking the dirt off of your body. That's good to know. But he's saying so much more than that. He is bringing a direct hyperlink from Genesis 7 and 8 all the way to the point of the gospel. And what he is saying is as the people, the remnant, were brought through the chaotic waters on a tava, we are now brought through the chaotic waters of death through our tava, Jesus. His resurrected life is now ours. I didn't make that up, y'all. In other words, baptism is symbolic for the same type of saving that the ark did for Noah, Jesus now does for us. And when we enter into baptism, that's what we're reminded of. We're reminded of who we identify with. We're reminded that it's not about my goodness, your goodness, any of our goodness. It's about what he has done for us. I'm not an ark. I can't save myself and I can't save you. But I know one who does. Through the waters, God takes his people to a land of promise and peace. Now, ever since then, each day, each and every day, men, women, and children across the globe are regularly being baptized, symbolizing their newness of life through the waters. Now, there are so many different thoughts when it comes to baptism, about believer's baptism or infant baptism, about sprinkling or immersion. Now, Mosaic holds the distinctive belief and practice of believer's baptism which means that we reserve the the waters of baptism only for those who are prepared to stand in front of biblical community to express their faith in Jesus, that their ultimate security is found in him alone, and that they now have a renewed purpose to go make disciples. Now, this isn't a criticism of other churches or faith traditions, but our desire is to be faithful to what we see expressed in the scriptures. One last story. When, when Ali and I were living in China a few years ago, I was fascinated to find out that many Chinese parents didn't really have a problem. Um, Chinese parents who um, were either atheist or Buddhist had very little problem with their, with their adult children going to Christian churches. They were fine with that. What they did typically have a problem with is when they desired to be baptized. They could face being disowned or dishonored. And I thought that was so fascinating to me. And I've heard stories like that from other cultural contexts as well. And here's what's so fascinating about this though, is that what it shows to me is that other cultures probably have a better understanding of what baptism does than we do as Christians. That they understand it actually means something. It is a changing of identification, a changing of allegiance, a new life and a new purpose. It's an identification. It is an external endeavor of an inward reality. See, the reality though, is that going through the waters has never symbolized a perfect life that is going to be easy and void of all difficulty. In fact, the reality is that because of the lingering effects of sin in our world, we don't get baptized and come out perfect. And we don't get baptized and come out and all of a sudden our circumstances are perfect. But what we do have a visual reminder of is that while the chapter we might be in in our story might be dangerous. The story we are ultimately in is safe. 
See, the early church displayed this consistently. Read the New Testament, read Acts through all the epistles and you will discover faithful women and men that went out and made disciples of Jesus and baptized them. They taught one another, not just to listen or intellectually agree with the way of Jesus, but to live it out, to obey God in the midst of a broken and suffering world. Even though this meant for many of them suffering and persecution, what the waters of baptism lived as was the ultimate reminder that while the waters might be chaotic right now, God was bringing them to the kingdom of heaven where promise and peace will reign forever. And we get this vision in John's revelation at the end of the Bible, the end of our story, or the end of our understanding of our story. When justice is finally dealt out, when Satan is handled, when sin is eradicated, eradicated when the chaos has ceased. Revelation 21 verse one, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. The sea is no more. In the Jewish imagination throughout the scriptures, the seas are always considered to be a place of this chaos, this chaos water, a place of death. So this doesn't necessarily mean that in the new heavens and the new earth, that there are going to be literally no oceans. We'll see what that looks like one day. What it definitely means though, is that the people have finally, fully and forever passed through the waters of chaos. And if you're tired of the waters of chaos in your life, I can't promise tomorrow means no chaos. What I can promise you is that this is the end of the story and the beginning of the truer and better one. And in that day, chaos is gone. Death, destruction, disease, oppression, hardship, all of it is gone. All that is left is life, light, and flourishing. We won't hold on to God's promises anymore because they'll all be fulfilled. We'll be living them out. No death. No fear, no anxiety, no tears. Just life of promise and flourishing with our King, Jesus, forever. See, when we get baptized and when we witness the baptisms of others, this is what we're reminded of. This is why I'm so excited right now and I wanna just get into the waters now. Because in baptism, we are reminded of the truth of the gospel, that we were dead. And Jesus, through his death, has made us alive. We are reminded that we are ultimately safe. And see this, this both and proposition that we are beloved and we are given a purpose is the ultimate example of a safe adventure. We are ultimately secure in Jesus, no matter what the world can do to us. And we are called on an adventure to go make disciples of all nations and to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and to remember that he has not forgotten us, abandoned us, rejected us, thought less of us. He abides in us and he desires that we would abide in him, that we would bear much fruit. And he will do exactly that till the end of the age. And that we have hope for today, that we don't have to fear the chaotic waters of life any longer. We can trust that the one who is strong in us 
strong enough to go to the cross for you and for me has the strength to sustain us wherever you are at tonight, tomorrow, next week. The gospel offers the ultimate safe adventure, the ultimate true protection. Imagine if we lived in this reality. But we are forgetful people, right? And we need to be reminded of this often, which is why it is so cool, not just to be baptized like our three friends are tonight, but to witness it, to celebrate it, to get loud, y'all. Because when we see this happening, we see the gospel work on display. So in a moment, I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna enter into our time of baptism. And each of our three baptism participants tonight uh, have written down a, um, a couple minute story, a letter to all of you answering the question of why they wanna be baptized tonight. Each of them have experienced the life of Jesus, have repented and surrendered to his lordship and now desire to express that new birth, that work of the Holy Spirit in them through baptism to our community. Each of them are aware that baptism baptism is not a means for salvation, but a visual expression of it, that this is the commissioning service for each of them to be reminded that they are both beloved and called. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you for the story of the Bible, that it is both true and truth. Now within it, we see the stories that you have been writing since before the dawn of time and that you continue to write until all brokenness has been discarded. So tonight, Lord, we celebrate. We celebrate with our three friends who are being baptized and we get excited because Tonight, we get to remember and be reminded of the beauty of the gospel, of what Jesus has done on our behalf. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.